We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Okay, we are uh, in Chapter 15 of Genesis Rabbah. Um, uh, we're, we're on the last page of the packet. Um, so this is uh, Midrash number 7 of uh, Chapter 15. And if you remember from last week, uh, what we're talking about now, actually what we talked about, sorry, not last week, the week before, um, but uh, what we've been talking about the past couple weeks is uh, what kind of tree the tree of life was. So does anybody remember what uh, some uh, options that we've discussed have been? Wheat, good. What else? Figs, good. Two others, the grapevine and an etrog tree. And now, of course, symbol of joy, celebration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm right. Each of each of these have different significance. You know, so um, and we've we've talked about some of that, but you know, uh, uh, wheat is obviously uh, has the significance of being you know primary food stuff, right? And, and um, you know, it's a diet, a staple of diet, um, and kind of like emblematic, emblematic of human industry in some way because it's the it's you know the only of these things that. Um, that can't be just pulled from the ground and eaten as is. You know, you have to you have to tend it and to make it into something else. Um, uh, an etrog obviously has you know all sorts of kinds of symbolism. Um, uh, and a fig tree, I don't know. I mean, we talked a little bit about fig tree. Um, you know, fig tree is is um, is a reasonable answer to this question: What kind of tree it was? For a couple of reasons. One is because after they eat of the fruit and discover that they're naked, uh, they sew together some fig leaves and put it over themselves. Uh, another is that you know the, these kind of trees kind of grow wild in in um, in you know lush parts of the Middle East. Um, so uh, so it wouldn't be unthinkable that a fig tree would be there. Uh, you know. Uh, the um, the woman says that it was a tree that was good to look at, or, or the sorry, the narrator of the text, the narrator of Genesis says that the woman saw that the tree was good to or pleasing to look at and good to eat, uh, and so you know that of these things, maybe grapevines, but uh, but but like that would be true of a fig tree, um, and fig trees also sometimes have the connotation of sensuality. Um, for reasons that are kind of beyond my pay grade, you'd have to talk to an anthropologist, I guess, or something. Uh, but um, uh, but anyway, so so and there's obviously a, uh, a a sensual or sexual dimension of the story of of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So um, fertility, 
fix it because of all the seeds. Yeah, like pomegranate, mm -hmm. which also has a prominent place. Right, I'm surprised that pomegranate was not. Was it? Yeah, that was that pomegranate was not uh, a possibility that was raised here. It's possible that it is in some other place, but in some like uh, some other midrash or also, some other text. The pomegranate, uh, because the numerous seeds was thought to be symbolic of the Torah, because the yeah. 630 commandments said they believe the pom are said a pomegranate had 613 seeds. I've heard that. I'm not sure. Oh, that's like an aphrodisiac. Oh. So there's there's obviously a, a sexual element to the to the story, um, particularly after they eat of the fruit, and so it's you know arguably it's a story about the discovery of, of desire, discovery of of, uh, of sexual desire, um, and so therefore you know if, if the fig is something you know symbolizes fertility or it's, it's associated with you know aph aphrodisiac or something like that, it may be a, a logical choice. But one thing you know when when God created. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right. So it, it makes it, it, you know, either there are uh, contradictions in the text that, uh, that, that make it impossible to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so either. Either there are contradictions like that in the text that are just impossible to reconcile, which I think is you know that like that, which which may be an argument for multiple authors of the text, right? And so in one tradition, you know, one tradition God says to the human beings, you know, the first thing God says is be fruitful and multiply, and then uh, uh, and then another tradition says that actually you know sexuality is uh, is is uh, is is a sin and it wasn't part of the original plan and you put these two texts together it looks like it's a unity but it's actually not a unity um, uh, so uh, you know another but it but it does you know if you're not going to interpret it that way right uh, and try to read the text like the rabbis do which is this you know in some sense a unity you have to account for those kind of discrepancies so if you're going to make an argument that let's say that the Garden of Eden story is ultimately about um, about you know uh, the uh, uh, the the inability of human beings to uh, control their you know sexual appetites or something like that, or the discovery of human sexual appetites or you know whatever, uh, then you do have to figure out what you're going to do with the with the verse that says be fruitful and multiply. And I guess what you could do with it is that. Um, that yeah, you know, human beings were supposed to uh, to reproduce, but they weren't supposed to enjoy it or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Isn't ever hell sexual relations with the sin? Uh, well, listen, I, you know, um, again, because you know, you have 
from the very beginning, be fruitful, multiply. Um, there's obviously a lot of uh, sexual intimacy uh, and sexuality that's described in the Torah and in and in and the Tanakh and in, in rabbinic literature. But like all religious traditions, um, there is a strand of Judaism that is more ascetic, that is more puritanistic, um, puritanical. Is that the word? Sorry. Um, so you know, it's it's hard it's hard to say that you know Judaism teaches this. I can say that that um, that I would. I'm confident saying that the dominant voice in Judaism is um, is uh, it embraces human sexuality at least within limits. You know, so it uh, prefers sexuality within uh, committed monogamous relationships. Uh, up until recently, its preference was uh, for uh, heterosexual sexuality. Uh, or it's our assumption of its preference was of hetero, heterosexual sexuality, um, and that um, and that sexual intimacy um, would be primarily designed for the purposes of procreation, but not exclusively. So um, so that it is uh, uh, acceptable and in some cases desirable for husbands and wives to enjoy each other sexually. Um, but uh, but for sure the tradition uh, presumes that the that the predominant reason for human beings to engage in sexuality sexual intimacy in the first place is for uh, reproduction. Um, so anyway, that's you know. But there, I mean, and there is vo- there are voices in you know there are voices in the tradition. Uh, I would say let's say it's to the left of that that actually argue for a much more expansive uh, view of, of, of sexuality and intimacy. You know, um, the Song of Songs is a really great example of that, where there's, you know, there's, there's just sort of um, rampant sexual behavior and doesn't seem like it's, you know, between two people who are married to each other. Um, doesn't necessarily seem like it's between two people. <laughs> so, um, you know, so, uh, and obviously, you know, in the, you know, in, in biblical tradition, uh, you know, men have multiple wives. They have women that they are, you know, sexual with that are not their wives and the, you know, the Torah is not uh, is not uh, does not uh, cast negative judgment on uh, on men having intimate relations with people who are not their wives. Um, so you know, like David and Bathsheba, for example. Right. The problem with David and Bathsheba was not that David was consorting with someone who wasn't his wife. The problem was that she was already married. Right. Uh, and the problem further was that David tried to off or did succeed in offing her husband in order to be with her. So um, uh, that's the problem that the text has with what David does, not the fact that he, you know. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, you could think of countless examples of, of the Torah's permissiveness, not only for men to marry multiple women, for, but for men to just... Judah It's another example. Uh, Judah... Um, uh, 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 Hires a prostitute who turns out to be his um, his daughter in law, um, Tamar. What Tamar? Right. Um, but the text doesn't seem to have a problem with the fact that he hired a prostitute. <laughs> um, that's not the problem of the story. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know that's the that's uh, so, anyway, so there there are voices I think that are more expansive and permissive of, of sexuality and tradition, and then voices that are much more conservative about it. Right. Um, 
provided, but in this case, for example, even Draghi points to their anonymity because they didn't want to have children. Right. And they wanted to take them to Right. So they would they. The, the, I would say this is another case of you know the, the the dominant historical read of that story, the dominant Jewish historical read of that story is that um, is that Onan um, uh, was killed by God because he um, he purposelessly spilled his seed, right? So whatever that means, he he you know he he, he masturbated instead of having sex, or he he you know uh, uh, pulled out and whatever. So whatever it means. Um, but I don't actually don't think that that's what the story is saying. I think that what, what God's upset about the story is he doesn't feel, fulfill his responsibility. Judaism has, the biblical law has a sense that, um, that you have an obligation to carry on your, your family's line. And so if your, if your brother, uh, if your brother dies before producing a child with his spouse, then the brother of that, then the brother has an obligation to, um, to, uh, produce a child through that spouse, or to be released from that responsibility through a ritual called chalitza, um, which is an interesting ritual in and of itself. But um, what? Yeah, it's called leveret marriage. Yibum, yibum, yibum. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So um, we're the uh, right-hand column of the last page here. So we're gonna we're gonna finish off this chapter uh, today, and then we'll we'll move on to to other to other things. Um, David, you want to read for us the midrash has presented? You can read just in English if it if it's comfortable. You can read the Hebrew too if you want. Oh, sorry. We're on the very last page of that first packet. Uh, it should have a seven in the corner. Um, yeah. Yep, there, that looks right. The Midrash has presented. Yep. The Midrash has presented four specific opinions regarding the identity of the tree of knowledge. Wheat stalk, grape, vine, etrog, and fig tree. It now records an altogether <clears throat> different perspective. Rev. Azaria. Azaria and Rev. Yehuda Bar Simon in the name of Rev. Yehoshua ben Levi each said, Heaven forbid that we say scripture hints at which tree is the tree of knowledge. Why the Holy One, blessed be he, has never revealed the identity of that tree to man. And he is not destined to reveal it. Good. Okay, so we I've actually mentioned this a couple of times if if if, uh, if, if memory serves. Right? That the that arguably the Torah goes out of its way not to say what kind of tree the tree of knowledge is. And so this you know rabbinic speculation about what kind of tree it was is in some sense natural, uh, but in some sense is is uh, possibly counter to the uh, to the to the point of Torah. It doesn't tell us what kind of tree the tree of knowledge was. It doesn't kind of it doesn't tell us what kind of tree the tree of life was. Um, and you know, presumably it doesn't tell us what kind of tree it was is because they were unique kinds of trees. So they're, they're, you know, they're, they're one of a kind. There's no other tree like the tree of knowledge. There's no other tree like the tree of life. Um, or like they're saying here is that maybe it has an identifiable variety, you know, uh, species, but 
it just deliberately didn't tell us. All right, keep going. Receive what is written, and a woman who approaches any animal for it to mate with her, he shall kill the woman and the animal. All right, let's just pause there for a second because that's a little uh, that's, that's a little uh, uh, juicy. So uh, the book of Leviticus uh, prohibits bestiality, um, and uh, and a uh, a woman who uh, has intercourse with an uh, with any kind of animal, um, uh, um, not only should she be put to death, but the animal also put to death. Um, I was talking with somebody about this. Oh, I, I said like you know, the, the, like the Torah spends a lot of time uh, forbidding bestiality. Like you wouldn't think that it would do that if it wasn't something that people were doing. Um, and so is a historian, American historian. He showed me uh, like writings from like the Plymouth Colony. Where they were, uh, where they were talking about uh, people engaging in bestiality, and apparently, in you know very, um, uh, in, in very like kind of agricultural settings where you're around a lot of animals and livestock all the time, it was a you know prevalent thing. Um, Wasn't it also associated with some um, pagan temple cults? Um, yeah, but I'm not positive that it ever really was. You know, the, the, the Torah says a lot of things are associated with paganism that, that we don't really have a lot of evidence were ever associated with paganism, like like child sacrifice. Um, the, only, the only evidence that we found in the ancient Near East of child sacrifice has been um, uh, in Israelite settlements, uh, which is kind of a mind-bender. But um, um, I could be wrong about that, but that's the, at least the last I heard, uh, the most recent archaeological uh, uh, opinion about that. Uh, okay, anyway, so that's what, right? So now we're going to say, this is, they're, they're going to make an argument from this idea that, uh, that, that both the woman and the animal are, uh, are to be killed if a woman sleeps with an animal, um, to say why, uh, to explain why God, uh, deliberately doesn't tell us what kind of tree the tree of knowledge was. Now, if the human being, if the human being sinned and is deservedly killed, how did the animal sin that it should likewise be killed? Right, that doesn't seem fair. You know, the animal didn't do anything wrong. Well, you know, I mean, uh, it, it didn't consciously do anything wrong, right? So, how can you punish the animal? For, uh, for for something that you know, didn't really have a choice in doing. But the explanation is as follows. The Torah calls for the animal's execution so that the animals shall not later pass by in the marketplace and people say, this is the animal through which so-and-so was stoned to death. All right, so um, everybody like, hear the argument there? Right, that uh, that we kill the animal so as to not uh, cause um, uh, additional uh, embarrassment or or maligning of the reputation of the of the human that was that was put to death. Um, so that so so nobody sees the animal and and, and has to remember uh, this negative thing about uh, the individual. And if the <clears throat> if the omnipresent cares thus. For the honor of Adam's descendants, how much more so does he care for the honor of 
Adam Adam himself, God's own handiwork. Right, so, um, seems like God is that sort of thing that what Adam does reflect on God. Uh, Why do you say that? right but uh, the question i have about that is um wouldn't wouldn't god want that wouldn't god want that uh, that reminder of the transgression in the first place you know isn't that like part of the point of um of um yeah isn't that part of the point like doesn't it make it more likely that people will commit the crime uh again if they um uh, if they if 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 they don't have that present reminder, can you imagine? Oh, you're saying because it's a tree of knowledge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the reminder that you're speaking of? The prohibition. The remi- the reminder being uh, um, so. It, I'm trying to think. Uh, sorry, this maybe wasn't a well-formed question or well-formed thought. Uh, so I might need to walk it back. Um, but um, uh, it just seems, you know. So okay, so we kill the animal so that we don't cause additional embarrassment to the to the woman. I get that, but uh, we hide the identity of the tree so as to not cause additional embarrassment to Adam. I get that too, um, but it also means that. Um, uh, that we don't have a present reminder of the crime that Adam committed uh, because we don't, you know, we can't like see the tree and say like, oh yeah, uh, like Adam did this bad thing with that tree. But I think not seeing the tree is the reminder. Hmm. We can't see the tree because we're not in the garden. Hmm. Because Adam sinned. There's our reminder. We're we're seeing the tree. And not in Eden. Yeah, we're seeing the tree. And you know, to um, to your point, uh, there's a, there's an element of the not knowing, which is a reminder, which is you know that you can eat from the tree of knowledge all you want, but there will still be things that you don't know. That that uh, that there's no um, that there's no uh, escape from that human limitation. It's impossible for human beings to know everything that there is to know. Any other thoughts about this before we move on? Every word brings up new questions. Okay. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, okay. All right. 
We're going to move on to uh, chapter uh, uh, to uh, chapter sixteen. Uh, but we're skipping a little bit. I'll tell you why I'm skipping. Because uh, I really wanted us to focus on um, on Adam and Eve and the uh, eating from the tree of knowledge. Um, and uh, the the Torah itself does a little digression from uh, from introducing us to the tree to talking a little bit more about the environment of the Garden of Eden, um, which the Midrash then explores some, um, you know, in ways that I think are interesting but not especially germane to the main topic of our conversation. Uh, and then. Uh, there are going to be some other things that I skip for a couple reasons, you know, partially because they're not so germane, um, largely for that reason. Uh, you know, they then, you know, it has a couple of verses about uh, placing Adam in the garden and, and all that. Uh, although, as if you recall, we've actually already, we've already been told that God placed the, uh, the man in, in, in the garden. So why it's saying it again is another question. Um, but uh, but so we're going to talk about that, and then uh, and then we're going to skip a little bit, uh, basically to um, uh, uh, we're going to do that the commandment not to eat from the tree of knowledge, um, and then we're going to skip a few verses in the Torah, which is a few uh, midrashim in um, in uh, this text, actually like a chapter and a half um, that deal with. That's the creation of Eve from the rib of Adam and things like that. Um, uh, those are also interesting midrashim. Uh, uh, I found that they are not especially relevant to the the issue of um, of the of the eating from the tree of knowledge, uh, and they're also largely uh, really misogynistic in ways that were that were that I was like not thrilled to share. Um, so uh, as you can imagine, now. It's it's possible that the misogyny is the rabbi's point, right? That like that their that their their take on it could be that their take on the Garden of Eden story is like see how terrible women are. Um, I, I haven't gotten there yet, uh, so uh, if that is what the, if that is their conclusion, uh, they don't really come to conclusions. They just raise you know uh, points. But um, then yeah, maybe we'll go back and look at those other midrashim. But um, that, that's why that's why we're but that's that's probably not even going to be relevant. That part of the skipping is not going to probably be relevant today. So, okay. Um, so chapter, uh, so we're chapter uh, sixteen, uh, midrash five. It's on the front page of the new packet, uh, and just so that we have it, um, I'll read uh, some of the verses from Genesis that we are uh, skipping over, and then and then get to uh, where we are now. All right. So we, we just finished. We we said and the Lord and and the Lord God caused uh, uh, to grow from the ground every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food, with the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and bad. A river issues from Eden to water the garden, and then it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon, the one that winds through the whole land of Chavila, where the gold is. The gold of that land is good. Fidelium is there, and Lapis Lazuli. The name of the second river is Gihon, the one that winds through the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, the one that flows east of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay, so that, those are the verses that we're skipping the Midrashim for. 
Um, and then we have this verse, verse 15. Uh, uh, the Lord God, again, that was the very first Midrash we had, is, you know, why why are all these, uh, why is God named here with the double name of, of God? So it's pretty consistent in these um, in these passages anyway, that uh, the Lord God uh, took the man uh, and placed him in the uh, in the Garden of Eden uh, to uh, to till it and to tend it, or to work it and to protect it. If you remember a little bit earlier, uh, uh, we um, uh, um, what it says about God and the man in the garden is Vayasem uh, Sham Et Adam Asher Yatsar. Uh, which is that God placed the man there who he had created. So now we have, in some sense, a reiteration of that verse, but with different language. So, um, so you know, whenever there are duplications of information in the Torah, it invites rabbinic questioning. Uh, and then especially if the duplications are not, well, whether the duplications are identical or whether they offer new information or change the language, it's uh, it's it's uh, food for rabbinic thought. And so here you do have, right, you have, there it's Vayasem Sham, God placed him there, and here it's Vayikach Et Adam V'yanichehu, God took him and placed him. Um, uh, and then it says for, you know, it says the purpose, it doesn't say the purpose before, it says Lil Dal to to work it and to protect it. Um, okay, so, or, or to work it and to guard it, as it translates it here. Um, Joe, you want to read? Uh, we are on the new handout, that's number five. Yeah, at the bottom of the, the bottom of the left-hand column, we're going to basically move right to the right-hand column. Start there, the, the Midrash site? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Midrash cites other interpretations of the word, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi the word, the word there is, sorry, it just has in Hebrew, the word is vayikach, which means uh, to, to, to take. Okay, sorry. Oh, okay. They put it. Okay. Um, com- commented on the matter. Rabbi Yehuda says that God elevated Adam and Gan Eden. Uh, this is as it states. The nations will take them and bring them to their place. Rabbi ne- Nekemiah Nehemiah, Nehemiah yeah. uh, said, God persuaded Adam to enter the garden. This is as it states, take words with you and return to Hashem. Say to him, "You may you forgive all iniquity, etc. Okay, okay. so let's, let's pause there. Okay, so we have two opinions about what Vayikach means, which literally means to take. The Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nehemiah are having a d- disagreement. Rabbi Yehuda says, that God elevated Adam. So in other words, like, uh, uh, lifted him up, uh, um, uh, which probably uh, uh, reads the word lakach or vayikach more literally as a taking, but adds the uh, sense that God is taking Adam to a, to a more exalted place. And that this is you know, this is this is a great gift that God is giving to Adam by placing him in the Garden of Eden, uh, and and 
tries to make his argument by referring to a verse from Isaiah um, that uh, that uh, that that uses the word lakach, uh, same root, uh, and, um, and, uh, uh, and and it uses it in that sense of like of, of lifting them up. Um, Rabbi Nechemia argues, in some senses, the opposite, right? That God had to persuade Adam to enter the garden. Um, so in other words, that the garden wasn't necessarily a place where Adam wanted to go. Uh, and so Vayikach there is taken from its literal sense, which means to take, um, and, uh, and, and is, is um, used a little bit more metaphorically, and quoting Hosea, uh, Hosea to... Um, uh, to to um, to to support that rationale um, that uh, uh, um, so Hosea says take words with you and return to Hashem right so in other words it's you know like like use a persuasive argument right um, so it's using the word lakach there uh, in the sense of taking words yeah there's a word they use in the future Vayikach is is uh, no 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 it's um, uh, biblical Hebrew um, uh, uses uh, uh, the uh, vayi uh, as uh, as a it's called imperfect um, uh, so it's it's it means that that it's like um, that it's not happening right now. Right, so um, so it, it means it is. It's essentially the past tense. Um, it just works functions differently than modern Hebrew. Before in the Garden of Eden, it's a good point. Good question. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. Um. Uh, it's a uh, you know uh, it's interesting because um, you know whenever you see the Garden of Eden story depicted in you know in like in in, uh, in, film. in art or film uh, it you know you get the sense that God creates Adam in the garden um, so where Adam comes from before going to the garden is uh, actually a really interesting question that I hadn't really spent all that much time thinking about I don't know what do you think. And why would he have to be persuaded? So I guess the, yeah. the question, right? The question that I have about this is, is you know, what's the difference between these two? Uh, and uh, it sounds kind of like there wasn't a lot of persuasion involved through the place of the garden. Right, right. So the the uh, if I were reading the text, uh, if I were reading the Torah, you know, uh, trying to you know, with the, like Occam's razor, right? you know, the simplest possible explanation, um, I probably would read it like that, right? That that, that God picked them up and plopped them in. Um, although that doesn't necessarily um, uh, uh, answer these two opinions, because it doesn't it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that it's some place that Adam wanted to go or somewhere that Adam wouldn't have wanted to go, right? It doesn't t- God. I, Taking him up and, and putting him somewhere, um, you actually could get the sense from that that like it was against Adam's will, right? Um, As opposed to the other one, you persuaded him, you talked him into it. So, kind of at the end of it, Adam said, "Yeah, okay, I'll go." Right. Um, 
I guess in both cases, it's, you know, it's sort of, well, I mean, actually, that's not true. I was about to say in both cases, it's against Adam's will, but that's not true. Uh, in the persuading case, it is. In the other case, it's not against Adam's will, but it's uh, presumably for his benefit. Um, Who's in Adam's. What is I don't know what is the Hebrew word that is being translated as persuaded? Vaikach. And what does that mean? It literally means to take. Uh, but it, but like a lot of Hebrew words, it can have a lot of different, different. Uh, usages. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, uh, Rabbi Nehemiah points to a verse in, in Hosea that imply, that uses the word take in, in like a linguistic sense. So it kind of gives off the, 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 the sense of, um, of like imparting a message. So it doesn't carry the connotation of having to convince someone. Um, no, I guess not. I mean, it, it could. I mean, the words he in in, Ho, in Hosea it does have that connotation, right? Take words with you and return to Hashem. Say to him, "May you forgive all iniquity, etc." Right? So it so there it's it's clearly a a, a persuasive thing. Uh, you you got to go to God and you know and and like and and uh, argue on our behalf. That's basically what that's saying. So then we could say that God is trying to coax Adam into the garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you don't want to be so um, so heavy handed about it, maybe you know, I'd say that. Um, Yeah, Coke's is fine. I mean, um, he's calling me from Azerbaijan, do you think? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, this is what I was thinking of, is that yeah. what often comes out, not only from what I've gleaned from this class, but working in this class, is that the general impression of Adam and Eve is that they're infantile. Mm-hmm. Like small children, mm-hmm. that there was a sense that they would be growing if they had remained in Eden. If you have a child, you may have to persuade or coax a child to go into something because a child could be skittish about a new experience, a new place. That's, that's what I was thinking. Hmm. But again, every word has. Right. Kirk reminded me of a, like a five or six year old on the first day of school. Yeah, they're using that's the most exactly scared. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can either push him through the door or say, well, you know, first grade, first day of school, you've got to go. Wham. So you're right. not, you're not, or you can coax him. You're not persuading him in the sense, I'm going to persuade you to believe this or to vote for this candidate as opposed to that one. That right. There's it's no argument. Encouraging. Encouragement. Yeah. yeah. Um, Don't be afraid. You can. So, it, so in that in that sense, it, it doesn't necessarily. It, it may have been a place that Adam was uh, anxious about going to, but was not necessarily a place that was bad for him to go to. Right, but right. And he may not have realized that. Right, because he, he didn't know. Yeah. So, what do you what do you guys think? 
which 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 position is more compelling to you? Uh, I'm really I, I'm still sitting with David. Your question of uh, which the midrash doesn't address, uh, which is where where did Adam come from? Um, and I don't know the answer to that question. Although the the um, there is another midrash that I now that I think about it, there's another midrash not in this collection. It's a midrash Tanhuma. Uh, that says that God made Adam from everywhere. So God uh, took uh, dust from like all the all the places of the earth and mixed it together to make Adam, so that uh, so that no person can ever say where I come from is better than where you come from, where you come from is better than where I come from, because we all we all come from everywhere. Um, which like is 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 a, is a beautiful image. It's, of course not. Biologically true. Uh, well, it is in a sense biologically true because we all come from the Big Bang and so we all have a single point of origin. Um, and uh, and then, and of course, our species all comes from Africa, so we do have a single origin. I kind of lean towards that he persuaded. Why? Why? Because that's how Jews usually do. <laughs> <laughs> Was Adam Jewish? It's foreshadowing. Ah, foreshadowing. They shall become lawyers. They shall become lawyers. I think he was great there. Okay. You know, because why was he trying to persuade Alan to go? I mean, he was. I think God was setting a trap for for Alan. Was setting a trap for Alan. I mean, he was trying to get him into the into the garden so he could learn something. But at the same time, he didn't want him to learn. Was he going to learn by himself? He was punished. Right. So, maybe he was placed there just to take care of the guardian, and then he made a big move. I mean, the the. To say that that Adam was coaxed or encouraged, you know, um, I, I think that that these that that is that, on some level, at the core of this debate is whether or not Adam had free will when Adam was created. Right, which is which is I think a, a, a question that we've discussed and explored, and is relevant to the question about you know Adam eating from the tree, um, and and did did human beings just gain free will after eating from the tree or uh, or uh, or before? But if you say that that Adam was persuaded or or encouraged or whatever, uh, then um, uh, then then clearly Adam has free will to say no, right? Um, but if Adam is, is picked up by God and put there, then Adam doesn't really have a choice. Well, you also had free will, though, before he took from the tree. Right, so I guess... If they didn't have free will, then just on top of them. Right, so, well, but we, we've explored that possibility, that, uh, that, that it was always God's plan for Adam to take from the tree. Adam was programmed to take from the tree. Now... It does beg the question then. Then how does then why does God punish Adam for having eaten from the tree? No, for example, you know, God he created, but he created, he created the uh, earth and then the animals, and the other one was Adam, and Adam was his favorite piece of work. Mm-hmm. And so he was, he was, he was favored for everything. So I, I feel that very moment because even when he said in the Talmud when he was with his women, and that it's supposed to be very you know intellectual, you know whatever. Mm-hmm. So he was already the spirit of God already in Adam. So he was already you how could he take care of the garden? He was he was supposed to be like the animals that they don't think of, you know. He was supposed to be superior to the animals. Yeah. So hmm. 
Quindi se pensavo mo che la decisione che non c'è non solo di animo, io prego le If there wasn't free will from the inception, then why create at all? Right. What's the purpose of evil? I mean, what's what's the whole purpose of the whole thing? <laughs> right. So then, so so if right, so I I think that that's a really good point, um, uh, and that to me um, uh, like makes me want to prefer Rabbi Nehemiah's point of view that uh, that 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 Adam was persuaded to go into the garden. Um, rather than, than physically forced, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what uh, what they said in the midrash about that God placed the man there. Um, so we actually had this. That um, uh, I'll read it to you. Um, Rabbi, this is the same one. Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nachemia commented on the matter. Rabbi Yehuda said God elevated Adam, uh, or God placed him, elevated him there. Uh, and Rabbi Nehemiah said that God persuaded. It's analogous to a king who made a banquet and invited a special guest. In a similar fashion, the Holy One, blessed is he, invited Adam to enter the garden. We actually had this debate already. Um, so, I have a general question. Yeah. So the rabbis only discuss the words that are written. Like they would not even go down this path of where was Adam I mean, they might, but they don't write it down. No, I think that they, I think that they, I think that they would have. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's midrash somewhere that that addresses that question, because one of the functions of midrash is to, to sort of like fill in the gaps of the narrative, um, you know, to give backstory or to or to give a more um, more color to characters, right? So, the, you know, one of the most famous midrashes is um, uh, Abraham smashing his father's idols. Right, um, you familiar with that one? Yeah. Um, so a lot of people are. It's so it's such a prevalent midrash that a lot of people are surprised to find that's not actually in the Torah. Um, and the reason for that midrash is, you know, like we just know that uh, the Torah introduces the character of Abraham uh, a few verses before God calls to Abraham. It doesn't really say much about him other than a little bit of genealogy um, and geography, um, uh, but it doesn't say why God calls him and never answers that question in the Torah. So the rabbis say, like, well, what was special about this Abraham that God chose him? Right? And then they say, well, you know, he discovered that there was only one God, and they you know, blah, 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 right? So, that's, so, they, so that is one of the functions of Midrash. So I wouldn't be surprised. I'll have to look for it, because I, I hadn't really thought about that question. Um, uh, you would think so, wouldn't you? Would they bring it up again? Um, I can I can kind of uh, do a little bit of uh, uh, of looking while we're while we're uh, talking, but um, does it make sense to to do one more? Yeah, go ahead. Where were where were the angels? Did God? Because God keeps, we shall let us make man in our own image. Was he using like the royal plural, referring to himself? In the or herself in the plural, or was he talking to some other entity? When, when, sorry, when God says, I was looking for midrashes, uh, when God says, uh, uh, let us create man in our image, 
so there are different well, we uh, uh, there, there are different opinions about it. We didn't we didn't look at that uh, at those midrashim because it was before like in the Torah it was before where we started. Um, but uh, but there are different opinions. Uh, some people say that God is speaking to the angels. Some people say that God is uh, speaking like in the royal we. Um, some people believe that God is speaking to the animals who at that point had already been created. So, you know, another, you know, kind of challenge of our story we mentioned before is that Genesis one, the order of creation in Genesis one is that animals are created. The rest of the animals are created and then human beings are created in Genesis chapter two, human, the man is created first and then the animals. Um, and, uh, and, and we don't, uh, and we don't get, um, uh, in, uh, in chapter two, it's in chapter one. Um, so anyway, so in chapter one, the animals are created. So maybe that that's what God's saying that let's, let's create a creature. That's some kind of combination of, of God and beast. Well, if you look ahead, the trials and tribulations that God, was faced with this entity that he created called man that we call man. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the thinking, you know, what did I create here? Because of these guys, these guys, uh, well, these guys don't, right? Yeah, don't seem to be getting along too. Yeah. Um, I think it's. I think that that's. Uh, I think that that's uh, certainly what God discovers, you know, in the in the text. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, should we go on a little bit, or, or should we uh, pause here? What do you think? Um, let's let's go on just this next paragraph here, okay? So that way we'll basically be finished with this with this page for today. Um, Joe, you want to keep on going? Uh, we're going to the next verse, which is the next verse, which is Vayani uh, uh, and placed him in the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. to work it into garden. Yeah. The Midrash cites other interpretations of the word. Vayani Chehu. Yeah. Vayani Chehu. Yeah, it's a hard one, but but again, you know, it makes sense. So they're talking the two action words that God has here are Vayikach and Vayani Chehu. Um, and so he took him and he placed him or put him to rest. The the root of Vayani Chehu is the same as uh, a major biblical character, Noah, right? Noah, uh, which means um, like restful, placid, you know. Um, okay, so God like re- like rested him in the garden. Rabbi uh, Yudan and Rabbi uh, Berakiah discussed the matter. Uh, Rabbi Yudan said the word Vani uh, Krehu. Vani Krehu. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Connotes that God gave Adam rest and protected him and allowed him to delight in all the trees of the garden. But uh, Rabbi Berakiah said the word. Vayani Chehu, yeah. Is not a statement of what actually transpired, as Rabbi Yudan holds. Rather, it means that God placed Adam in the garden with the intent to give him rest and to protect him and to allow him to delight in all the trees of the garden of Eden. Okay. 
So what's my uh, benaihu, uh, as they say, what's the difference between these two perspectives? I, I, I back to my default again to this at the end of the tile. Mm-hmm. Um, the second version is he's giving him rest, but he's protecting him. Which you would do with a child or a young person. Mm-hmm. As opposed to putting him there with the earlier allowed him to delight. Well, you can delight at any age. Question. And the rest of what? Right. Was it working? Right. <laughs> yeah. If he was in the garden, so he was supposed to tend it and stay with it. So it wasn't even working. So it could be, it could be that wherever he was before the garden was a more dangerous place, and the garden itself was the was the you know rest and protection from uh, from that. That would comport with the way kind of the Garden of Eden is is used in. In, in theology, right, in, or in, es, in eschatology, um, that uh, that like it's you know symbolic of uh, of you know the peaceful world where, where everybody will be able to sit in, under their grapevine and whatever and uh, and uh, and not be threatened by anyone. Prophet Micah, um, so that you know that that this sort of like we you know this was this was a you know perfected world within a world kind of. Um, where, where, where nothing could harm Adam, except for himself. A place of refuge. A place of refuge, yeah. See, I don't know if this is in any midrash, but it seems... I've always had an impression that in Eden, Adam and Eve didn't, weren't afraid of the animals, even the wild animals. The animals didn't attack each other. You mean on the ark? No, in the garden. Um, so I I know of traditions about that on the ark, but I mean it may be right about the garden too. Um, or that you know again it could just be depictions in art or film. Yeah, I mean it makes sense, right? That that it's a that it's a peaceful place where where you know animals aren't killing each other all the time. So for example, I don't know what lions are eating, but yeah. Animals was vegetarian. Yeah. So wild animals were also well behaving. And once you know Adam made a mistake of eating food, mm-hmm. also the animals were punished and they were they, they came wild after that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh now maybe if Adam was outside <laughs> the garden of Florida, he was persuaded to get to go in. Was he already living in that wild and in that wild kingdom before he went into the garden of eating out of there was people where animals were happy and they were not eating each other. But outside, it was already a place where they were eating each other. Right. So yeah, it could so be. It could be. What? Like, like the island of Dr. Moreau. Doctor 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 yeah. Doolittle, um, walk with the animals, talk with the animals. Um, if they weren't supposed to kill other animals in the wild, what were the, how were they supposed to survive? They were eating flowers. <laughs> there you go. Lions eating flowers. They were all vegetarian. <laughs> Do you notice, uh, originally, humans were 
kind of an evil vengeance. They were very intense. Or at least vengeance. It's coming. Well, listen, I think that, that, that it might be. It, I mean, you may be right. And that's, and that's certainly how a lot of people read it. Um, God doesn't say that they're not allowed to eat animals. God just says that you can eat all the, you know, I'm giving you all the fruit and you know, plants of the garden to eat. So, um, I don't know. It's a you know, question of, you know, was God speaking, you know, exclusively there, right? Uh, limiting what they ate to those things, to the plants? Um, or was uh, or was God just name, you know, saying like, like, obviously, if you catch a gazelle, go to town, right? Um, it's an open question. I, I, I like to think the former, um, and there's certainly a lot of argument made about it, but I'm not sure that the text is clear about it. Regardless of swing barn, eat them to eat their vegetables. Eat their vegetables, exactly. That's, that's, what it, that's what it must mean, where God, God protected him. God protected him by making sure they, you know, they got all their vitamins and minerals. Yeah. Um, you know it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I suppose this goes right down to the very basic of biblical interpretation of hermeneutics. We tend to get bogged down as we are uh, in the minutia of all the various questions. Why, why, if he entered the garden, where did he enter from, and so on? What did he eat, and so on? Whoever wrote this is writing a narrative. Not a theological treatise. Right. And there's much that perhaps we should not be concerned with. Look at what are the salient features. Right. You know, what what is the focus, it seems. I, I, I once ended up in a, a debate with someone who was so concerned about the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah passage mm -hmm. that uh, was concerned that innocent children would have existed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. and they were killed. Mm -hmm. Well, being absolutely logical and approaching it from that point of view is absolutely correct. Right. But I think that should have been totally ignored. Right. Because the focus, the salient point is the justice of God. He is willing to, uh, he will not destroy the innocent. He'd rather save the guilty than to destroy the innocent. Right. In other words, there are main features that we should look at. If we take it that literally, we're going to get bogged down as we get bogged down with all these questions. Right. So I guess I guess I'll say a few things to that first. I really appreciate it, um, and I think that what it reminds me of is um, uh, uh, something that that, uh, that that's become a kind of fashionable thing to say in, in conservative Judaism, which is that we we take the Bible seriously but not literally. Also, it's something that people say about Donald Trump too. So <laughs> take that, take that, take that with whatever you want to. Uh, right. So, um, so you know, so I think that that's the you know that's that that I think you know uh, re uh, reflects what you're saying is that uh, is that you know you got to understand like you know if the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is historically accurate to the point that if you were to you know watch perfect footage of what happened back then, it would have been exactly what, like what the Torah reported. Then it actually might be disturbing for those details that you yeah. mentioned. But that's not, but but it probably didn't, and that's probably not what the text is saying. So with this, this way of reading it seriously is, is what is the what is the message that the text is trying to communicate through this narrative? Um, and so I think that that's true. Uh, but I will, I, I will also say that sometimes you can, um, you can, 
uh, understand what the message is best through a very close reading of the text. That's a, what I think the rabbinic... So in addition to trying to construct a narrative, right, what the what rabbinic tradition is trying to do is saying um, the way to best understand the narrative is sometimes doing a very deep dive into, into the minutia because hidden within the minutia are the messages that the text is trying to get us to receive. The second thing I want to say about it is um, that... Uh, there's competing narratives in here, right? Uh, so this isn't just necessarily, you know, and kind of what I was hoping for, but I realized very early on that that was a foolish uh, uh, hope, uh, was that there would be a very coherent, you know, thread of how to interpret the story in a, in a particular way. Um, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is you have lots of rabbinic voices uh, that are adding their own uh, thoughts about how to interpret different pieces of the story, if you were, now you could make an argument, probably a scholarly argument, that if you kind of like, you know, follow, you know, different strands of it through, it presents the story in one way, versus if you follow another strand of it through, it presents the story in another way. Um, So I think, for example, you know, one strand of this is highlighting um, uh, human freedom in the story, which, uh, uh, which uh, uh, you, um, uh, which it's possible to not have a, a sense of from a strict reading of the of the text, right? And 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 there are definitely uh, points of view that are minimizing human freedom with this story. God placed him there, right? God placed him there, and God knows what's going to happen in the future, right? Like invites really challenging questions about what's the meaning of the story. Well, why does God punish them? Right? You know all that stuff. So. Um, so so uh, um, so anyway, what my my point is that that uh, I think it's not so cut and dry, uh, which I assume is not what you're saying either. But I just want to highlight that it's not so cut and dry that there's that there's one narrative trajectory that this that this text is taking us in. But the final thing, and then this is what we can end on, um, is um, so let's just take this small piece, which is um, you know one point of view saying that God. Um, uh, uh, gave Adam rest and protected him by placing him in the garden, uh, or when he placed him in the garden, uh, uh, or God um, intended Adam stay in the garden to be for protection and enjoyment. What is the significance? What is the meaning? Um, why is either why why would e- why would adopting either of those positions matter? In well, there's, a wider there's something sense. there. There's more to it than what you're saying. If the intent is um, that would be his wish or expectation, and you can talk about human freedom, but yeah, human freedom is rather much like free will. But at the same time, there could be limits on that freedom. Mm-hmm. How free is it? Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. It's a really good uh, I approach it sometimes with the point of view of what is, are there contradictions? Yeah. If there are contradictions, then you have, a little, you have to decide one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, I think the contradiction there would be that leading up to that story, of course, Ed, uh, Abraham is arguing with God and arguing what if there's uh, 100 righteous, uh, 50 righteous, right, or whatever right. it is. And it's very clear God says, no, I will not destroy it. Right. 
And then, but he does destroy it, therefore there must be no righteous there at all. But what about the children? Yeah, right. Well, that contradicts the whole lead-up to the whole story, the whole narrative. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> ignore it. <laughs> um, logically correct. For example, we're looking at the virtuous, virtuous, you know, it's like innocence. We're looking at the children, they were innocent. They were, I mean, even they were living children and Gomorrah. And Gomorrah. They were innocent, so that's why they were righteous. Yeah. Yeah. But he killed them. Right. What does that mean? Well, logically speaking, there's a, a village there, and, and so yeah. apparently, the God, I mean, he and his guilty seems actually quite fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to go down the rabbit hole of the Sodom and Gomorrah story uh, right now, but yeah, but um, yeah, no, but it, I mean, that's exactly the that's exactly the question. So the question is, you know, do we read the story uh, as a as a challenge to God's justice, which is I think the 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 uh, implication of asking the question about God killing all the children in Sodom and Gomorrah, or do we read the story as a vindication of God's justice, exactly. which is probably the the general sense of what that story is meant to do. I mean, it also might be, it was the way a lot of, you know, contemporary Jews read it, is that that story is not meant to really do either of those things, but it's meant to point out a couple of things. One is um, the the importance of, uh, of, of challenging authority, uh, which Abraham does, um, the importance of, of uh, arguing on behalf of others, standing up in defense of others, the, um, you know, whatever it was that the crime of Sodom was uh, that uh, that 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 so incensed God and uh, that was so per- pervasive to incense God. I think is another possible point of the story, uh, and then an additional point of the story is to uh, to uh, uh, to uh, to follow up on what happens to Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew, uh, who is part of the Abraham's narrative at the beginning. Uh, and, um, you know, maybe the, you know, maybe to like teach the pillar of salt thing and maybe an, uh, an ideological story about like, you know, how the salt planes, uh, um, in, in, you know, Southern Israel and, and Moab came to be. So there's all sorts of reason, you know, it may, there may not be one simple answer. Like the story is told. For this yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, but that, that's really the whole, that's what we're doing here by, yeah. by examining, reading these and examining them. There's so much to them. Right, right. I know, and I don't know why I like, I think I told you that like, you know, my, my, uh, my motivating impulse for, for studying this was I wanted to write a children's book about the Garden of Eden story. And I was like, okay, well, if I, if I kind of understand, you know, what the message is of the story, that's more than just like, you know, uh, obey authority. It's like, I watched the Veggie Tales with my kids the other day, and that was, that was basically, they even had a song about obeying authority at the end. Um, <laughs> right. One, one more thing. Do you think it was also innocence? I mean, really, when they ate the food, uh, it could be. It certainly could be. Yeah. Well, right. So, um, you know, that could be the, what this is talking about here is uh, is that you know they were sort of childlike when they entered the garden, uh, and uh, and maybe they maybe God intended for them to remain childlike, um, so that they had so they have really, like you're saying they they had freedom but not enough um, knowledge to utilize that freedom. Um, but also not enough knowledge to be manipulative with that freedom, uh, and um, and they you know and, and eating the tree uh, uh, robbed them of that of that. Now the the, you know, the question, of course, of that is um, did God really want them 
want us to be like children for all of human existence.